Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining me again on another episode of the Red Light Report. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview, if you listened to it, that, that fireside chat, so to speak, uh, that I had with Roz over in Western Australia as she shared her insights and her experience and her knowledge from the past decade and a half, essentially. Uh, so it was cool to sit down with someone from the community and and learn and conversate with, with her. And I'm hoping to do that with more of you guys uh, in the future. So again, if you guys have any unique experiences or anecdotes uh, that you'd like to share, please reach out to me through email or social media, just any way you can so we can set up that conversation. And again, it can be five minutes, it can be 10 minutes, or it can be a full-fledged hour plus if if you're that excited about uh, sharing. But again, I I love having these conversations because the more we can talk to each other, uh, the more we can learn and grow together. And, And especially in a younger space like red light therapy, I think that's kind of a lot of where the rubber meets the road. Because I can regurgitate the science in the research as it comes out, but to have people, real people, people, so to speak, that are utilizing this technology, whether they're treating clients or, or animals who could be considered clients or patients or on themselves and friends and family, to hear the real results that people are getting with red light therapy, I think speaks massive volumes uh, as much, if not more so than, than what the research is reporting. So, so please do reach out if you want to have that conversation with me and we'll surely make it happen. But I'm going to jump straight in today's topic, which is this book I've been reading for the past week or two now, which is, I'm just on a string of profound books, I guess. This one is called The Invisible Rainbow, A History of Electricity and Life. I'm sure a handful of you guys out there in the audience have, have read this book. It's by Arthur Furstenberg, but essentially it's about electricity's history and how it's impacted humans' health, or really the health of the entire earth, but it really highlights human human health. And so the section I'm going to jump to is specifically on heart health, but Arthur in this book, he highly, highly researches and cites the information, and we're talking from it could be decades ago, if not centuries ago. So he's pulled all of the information he could find from all types of sources from centuries ago. And he's basically chronicled health issues that have arisen secondary to electricity innovation. So what do I mean by that? Well, it could be the invention of electricity itself, the light bulb. Then we have radios. Then we have cell phones. Then we have wireless cell phones. Then we have these upgraded forms of wireless communication such as 3G and now 5G. And so we're going through these paces with innovation and technology, but research and health can't keep up with the pace of technology. So we really never know what the current technology is doing to our health until years, if not decades or longer later. So so technology is outpacing ways that we can monitor or really do research on the ramifications. Again, what does 5G do to our health? What has it done to our health and what's it going to do to our health? And that begs the question, I haven't completely finished this book yet, and I don't think this is a book that's going to give you a how to mitigate being exposed to all these EMFs. It's virtually impossible unless you're in, I think he said, sub-Saharan Africa. Otherwise, we're, we're constantly being bathed in a myriad of different types of non-native EMFs. Again, EMFs are good. That's what grounding is, electromagnetic fields. Uh, That's why PEMF mats are so good, because they're using positive aspects of EMFs. But when we're talking about the negative consequences of electricity, we're talking non-native EMFs. So Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, these different types of radio waves, microwaves, gamma waves that are human-made. They're not necessarily made from nature. So again, this book has been profound as far as shifting my perspective on why we are having all of these trials and tribulations and parabolic rises in 
health maladies and diseases and cancers, basically anything, you name it, it's secondary to this increase of electricity or electric technology in one form or another. One of the chapters actually earlier on in the book, he details how influenza or the flu is literally an electric disease or an electric health condition. And he specifically details different times in history, like why we had the Spanish flu and the Hong Kong flu. And it's because of this, that those points in time when this new wave, again, of radio or electric technology was rising up. And this book was copywritten in 2017. So that's pre-COVID-19. And this is pure speculation on my part, just based on reading this book, The Invisible Rainbow. But I would hazard a guess that COVID-19 was caused by 5G. Again, that's just predicated on the information I'm learning. Uh, when you have this new ramp up of technology and 5G has been the newest one, and you're you're bathing the entire world and the nation in this new hyper electric and hyper frequency technology, our body and our cells have not been exposed to that ever in history. And so the ramifications of, of that new technology, I think, was was COVID-19 and this perpetual increase in overweight, obesity, type 2 diabetes, all types of metabolic diseases. Because as, as it's outlined in the book, and we'll learn in this chapter I'm about to read here, this electricity, these new or these non-native EMFs literally decrease your metabolic health. And metabolic health is synonymous with mitochondrial function. So again, just in a nutshell, this new technology is ruining our mitochondrial function. And so again, we hearken back to Dr. Doug Wallace who has said, and I don't know if Doug Wallace has made this connection necessarily, but upwards of 80% of all modern diseases are directly tied to mitochondrial dysfunction. And so now reading this book, The Invisible Rainbow, if we now know that electricity and non-native EMFs directly impacts the functioning of our mitochondria negatively, so it's literally tearing down our mitochondria and it's leading to metabolic diseases, Then connecting the dots, Doug Wallace is noticing a ramp up in an environment that the mitochondria is being bathed in, being electricity that's reducing its health or its ability to function and produce ATP, which is that token of energy. So anyway, I'll stop talking and and giving cliff notes, so to speak, on, on this book. I highly recommend it, especially if you find this episode interesting. I'm not sure how much of this chapter I'll get through because it's a relatively lengthy one. Uh, We might make this a a two-part or even a three-part series because the next chapter on electricity and diabetes is equally interesting. But I'll I'll, I'll do this first episode and kind of get some feedback from you guys and see if we should continue on to another episode or two of this. Uh, But I'm going to begin in chapter 11 that's entitled Irritable Heart. So I hope you guys enjoy. On the first day of autumn, 1998, Florence Griffith Joyner, a former Olympic track gold medalist, died in her sleep at the age of 38 when her heart stopped beating. That same fall, Canadian ice hockey player Stefan Morin, age 29, died of sudden heart failure during a hockey game in Germany, leaving behind a wife and a newborn son. Chad Silver, who had played on the Swiss national ice hockey team, also age 29, died of a heart attack. Former Tampa Bay Buccaneers nose tackle Dave Logan collapsed and died from the same cause. He was 42. None of these athletes had any history of heart disease. A decade later, responding to mounting alarm among the sports community, the Minneapolis Heart Institute Foundation created a national registry of sudden deaths in athletes. After combing through public records, news reports, hospital archives, and autopsy records, the foundation identified 1,049 American athletes in 38 competitive sports who had suffered sudden cardiac arrest between 1980 and 2006. The data confirmed what the sports community already knew. In 1980, heart attacks in young athletes were rare, 
only nine cases occurred in the United States. The number rose gradually but steadily, increasing about 10% per year until 1996, when the number of cases of fatal cardiac arrest among athletes suddenly doubled. There were 64 that year and 66 the following year. In the last year of the study, 76 competitive athletes died when their hearts gave out, most of them under 18 years of age. The American medical community was at a loss to explain it. But in Europe, some physicians thought they knew the answer not only to the question of why so many young athletes' hearts could no longer stand the strain of exertion, but to the more general question of why so many young people were succumbing to diseases for which only old people used to die. On October 9, 2002, an association of German doctors specializing in environmental medicine began circulating a document calling for a moratorium on antennas and towers used for mobile phone communications. Electromagnetic radiation, they said, was causing a drastic rise in both acute and chronic diseases, prominent among which were, quote, extreme fluctuations in blood pressure, heart rhythm disorders, and heart attacks and strokes among an increasingly younger population. 3,000 physicians signed this document named the Freeburger Appeal after the German city in which it was drafted. Their analysis, if correct, could explain the sudden doubling of heart attacks among American athletes in 1996. That was the year digital cell phones first went on sale in the United States, and the year cell phone companies began building tens of thousands of cell towers to make them work. Although I knew about the Freeburger appeal and the profound effects electricity could have on the heart, when I first conceived this book, I did not intend to include a chapter on heart disease, for I was still in denial despite the abundant evidence. Well guys, BioLite has what's called bundles. So simply go to the BioLite website, BioLite.shop, go into products and there will be a tab for bundles. With each of these bundles, there's three of them, you save 20% off on the entire package. For example, we have the Beauty Bundle, which includes a Shine and Stand, a Guardian Plus, and the Longev Revive Cream. So that bundle of three products, you save 20% off the entire package. There's the Recovery Bundle, that includes the Recharge Plus panel, the Guardian mouthpiece, and then the Longev recover cream and that recover cream is just like the revive cream except it has added cbd oil infused into it that package of three items all comes at 20 percent off and then the last bundle which is the most versatile bundle in the sense that you get to pick and choose what products you want you get to pick and choose from the recharge plus panel the restore plus panel or the matrix full body mat and then you get to choose between the guardian and guardian plus and then you get to choose between revive and the recover cream it also includes the shine and stand so you get to choose between black and silver by purchasing those four products in the ultimate bundle you save 20% off all of the products you also save 20% off shipping so literally the entire package and shipping is 20% off so if you're ever needing some red light therapy products and are looking for a discount just remember the bundles are always 20% off 365 days a year no coupon code necessary we recall from chapter 8 that Marconi the father of radio had 10 heart attacks after he began his world-changing work, including one that killed him at the age of 63. And just for a reference, Marconi was, he was doing all of the wiring and cabling, basically connecting radio, I believe it was over in Europe at that time. So he was the one literally intimately connected with the building of the radio stations and the radio towers and, and the radio cables. So that constant exposure is what led to his 10 heart attacks and ultimately his death. But back to the book here. Anxiety disorder, which is rampant today, is most often diagnosed from its cardiac symptoms. Many suffering from an acute anxiety attack have heart palpitations, shortness of breath, and pain or pressure in the chest which so often resemble an actual heart attack that hospital emergency rooms are visited by more patients who turn out to have nothing more than quote-unquote anxiety than by patients who prove to have something wrong with their hearts. And yet we recall from chapter 6 that anxiety neurosis was an invention of Sigmund Freud, a renaming of a disease formerly called neurasthenia that became prevalent only in the 19th late 19th century following the building of the first electrical communication systems. 
Radio wave sickness, described by Russian doctors in the 1950s, includes cardiac disturbances as a prominent feature. Not only did I know all of this, but I myself have suffered uh, for 35 years from palpitations, abnormal heart rhythm, shortness of breath, and chest pain related to exposure to electricity. Yet, when my friend and colleague, Jolie Andrizakis, suggested to me that heart disease itself had appeared in the medical literature for the first time at the beginning of the 20th century, and that I should write a chapter about it, I was taken by surprise. In medical school, I had had it so thoroughly drilled into me that cholesterol is the main cause of heart disease that I had never questioned the wisdom that bad diet and lack of exercise are the most important factors contributing to the modern epidemic. I had no doubt that electromagnetic radiation could cause heart attacks, but I did not yet suspect that it was responsible for the heart disease. Then another colleague, Dr. Samuel Milham, muddied the waters some more. Milham was an MD and an epidemiologist retired from the Washington State Department of Health. He wrote an article in 2010 followed by a short book suggesting that the modern epidemics of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer are largely, if not entirely, caused by electricity. He included solid statistics to back up these assertions. I decided to dive in. I first became aware of Milham's work in 1996 when I asked to help with a national lawsuit against the Federal Communications Commission. I was still living in Brooklyn and knew only that the telecommunications industry was promising a quote-unquote wireless revolution. The industry wanted to place a cell phone in the hands of every American, and in order to make those devices work in the urban canyons of my hometown, they were applying for permission to erect thousands of microwave antennas close to street level throughout New York. Advertisements for the newfangled phones were beginning to appear on radio and television, telling the public why they needed such things and that they would make ideal Christmas gifts. I did not have any idea how radically the world was about to change. Then came a phone call from David Fichtenberg, a statistician in Washington State, who told me the FCC had just released human exposure guidelines for microwave radiation and asked if I wanted to join a nationwide legal challenge against them. The new guidelines, I came to find out, had been written by cell phone industry itself and did not protect people from any of the effects of microwave radiation except one, being cooked like a roast in a microwave oven. None of the known effects of such radiation, apart from the heat, effects on the heart, nervous system, thyroid gland, and other glands were taken into consideration. Worse, Congress had passed a law that January that actually made it illegal for cities and states to regulate this new technology on the basis of health. President Clinton had signed it on February 8th. The industry, the FCC, Congress, and the President were conspiring to tell us that we should all feel comfortable holding devices that emit microwave radiation directly against our brains and that we should all get used to living in close quarters with microwave towers because they were coming to a street near you whether you liked it or not. A giant biological experiment had been launched and we were all going to be unwitting guinea pigs. Except that the outcome was already known. The research had been done, and the scientists who had done it were trying to tell us what the new technology was going to do to the brains of cell phone users and to the hearts and nervous systems of people living in the vicinity of cell towers, which one day soon was going to be everybody. Samuel Milham Jr. was one of those researchers. He had not done any of the clinical or experimental research on individual humans or animals. Such work had to be done by others in previous decades. Millam was an epidemiologist, a scientist who proves that the results obtained by others in the laboratory actually happened to masses of people living in the real world. In his early studies, he had shown that electricians, power line workers, telephone linesmen, aluminum workers, radio and TV repairmen, welders, and amateur radio operators, those who work expo those whose work exposed them to electricity or ele electromagnetic radiation, died far more often than the general public from leukemia, lymphoma, and brain tumors. 
He knew that that the new FCC standards were inadequate, and he made himself available as a consultant to those who were challenging them in court. In recent years, Milham turned his skills to the examination of vital statistics from the 1930s and 1940s when the Roosevelt administration made it a national priority to electrify every farm and rural community in America. What Milham discovered surprised even him. Not only cancer, he found, but also diabetes and heart disease seemed to be directly related to residential electrification. Rural communities that had no electricity had little heart disease, until electric service began. In fact, in 1940, country folk in electrified regions of the country were suddenly dying of heart disease four to five times as frequently as those who still lived out of electricity's reach. Quote, it seems unbelievable that mortality differences of this magnitude could go unexplained for over 70 years after they were first reported, wrote Milham. He speculated that early in the 20th century, nobody was looking for answers. But when I began reading the early literature, I found that everyone was looking for answers. Paul Dudley White, for example, a well-known cardiologist associated with Harvard Medical School, puzzled over the problem in 1938. In the second edition of his textbook, Heart Disease, he wrote in amazement that Austin Flint, a prominent physician practicing internal medicine in New York City during the last half of the 19th century, had not encountered a single case of angina pectoris, which is chest pain due to heart disease, for one period of five years. White was provoked by the tripling of heart disease rates in his home state of Massachusetts since he had begun practicing in 1911. Quote, As a cause of death, he wrote, heart disease has assumed greater and greater proportions in this part of the world until now it leads all other causes, having far outstripped tuberculosis, pneumonia, and malignant disease. In 1970, at the end of his career, White was still unable to say why this was so. All he could do was wonder at the fact that coronary heart disease, disease due to clogged coronary arteries, which is the most common, common type of heart disease today, had once been so rare that he had seen almost no cases in his first few years of practice. Quote, of the first hundred papers I published, he wrote, only two at the end of the hundred were concerned with coronary heart disease. Heart disease had not, however, sprung full-blown from nothing at the turn of the 20th century. It had been relatively uncommon, but not unheard of. The vital statistics of the United States show that rates of heart disease had begun to rise long before White graduated from medical school. The modern epidemic actually began, quite suddenly, in the 1870s at the same time as the first great proliferation of telegraph wires. But that is to jump ahead of myself, for the evidence that heart disease is caused primarily by electricity is even more extensive than Milham suspected, and the mechanism by which electricity damages the heart is known. To begin with, we need not rely only on historical data for evidence supporting Milham's proposal, for electrification is still going on in a few parts of the world. From 1984 to 1987, scientists at the Siderom Barcha Institute of Science and Research decided to compare rates of coronary heart disease in Delhi, India, which were disturbingly high, with rates in rural areas of Gurgaon district in Haryana state 50 to 70 kilometers away. 27,000 people were interviewed, and as expected, the researchers found more heart disease in the city than in the country. But, they were surprised by the fact that virtually all of the supposed risk factors were actually greater in the rural districts. City dwellers smoked much less. They consumed fewer calories, less cholesterol, and much less saturated fat than their rural counterparts. Yet, they had five times as much heart disease. It is clear from, a, from the present study, wrote the researchers, that the prevalence of coronary heart disease and its urban-rural differences are not related to any particular risk factor, and it is therefore necessary to look for other factors beyond the conventional explanations. The most obvious factor that the researchers did not look at was electricity. For in the mid-1980s, 
the Gurgaon district had not yet been electrified. In order to make sense of these kinds of data, it is necessary to review what is known and what is still not known about heart disease, electricity, and the relationship between the two. My Hungarian grandmother, who was the main cook in my family while I was growing up, had arteriosclerosis, which is the hardening of arteries. She fed us the same meals she cooked for herself and, at the advice of her doctor, they were low in fat. She happened to be a marvelous cook, so after I left home, I continued eating in a similar style because I was hooked on the taste. For the past 38 years, I have also been a vegetarian. I feel healthiest eating this way, and I believe that it is good for my heart. However, soon after I began to do research for this chapter, a friend gave me a book to read titled The Cholesterol Myths. It was published in 2000 by Danish physician Uffe Ronskov, a specialist in internal medicine and kidney disease and a retired family practice doctor living in Lund, Sweden. I resisted reading it because Ramskov is not unbiased. He thinks vegetarians are pleasure-avoiding stoics who heroically deny themselves the taste of proper food in the mistaken belief that this will make them live longer. Ignoring his prejudices, I eventually read his book and found it well-researched and thoroughly referenced. It demolishes the idea that people are having more heart attacks today because they are stuffing themselves with more animal fat than their ancestors did. On its surface, his thesis is contrary to what I was taught as well as to my own experience. So I obtained copies of many of the studies he quoted and read them over and over until they finally made sense in the light of what I knew about electricity. The most important thing to keep in mind is that the early studies did not have the same outcome as research being done today, and that there is a reason for this difference. Even recent studies from different parts of the world do not always agree with each other for the same reason. Ranskov, however, has become something of an icon among portions of the alternative health community, including many environmental physicians who are now prescribing high-fat diets, emphasizing animal fats, to their severely ill patients. They are misreading the medical literature. The studies that Ranskov relied on show unequivocally that some factor other than diet is responsible for the modern scourge of heart disease, but they also show that cutting down on dietary fat in today's world helps to prevent the damage caused by that other factor. Virtually every large study done since the 1950s in the industrialized world, agreeing with what I was taught in medical school, has shown a direct correlation between cholesterol and heart disease. And every study comparing vegetarians to meat eaters has found that vegetarians today have both lower cholesterol levels and a reduced risk of dying from a heart attack. Ranskov speculated that this is because people who eat no meat are also more health conscious in other ways. But the same results have been found in people who are vegetarians only for religious reasons. Seventh-day Adventists all abstain from tobacco and alcohol, but only about half abstain from meat. A large number of long-term studies have shown that the Adventists who are also vegetarians are two to three times less likely to die from heart disease. Perplexingly, the very early studies, those done in the first half of the 20th century, did not give these kinds of results and did not show that cholesterol was related to heart disease. To most researchers, this has been an insoluble paradox contradicting present ideas about diet and has been a reason for the mainstream medical community to dismiss the early research. For example, people with a genetic trait called familial hypercholesterolemia have extremely high levels of cholesterol in their blood, so high that they sometimes have fatty growths on their joints and are prone to gout-like attacks in toes, ankles, and knees caused by cholesterol crystals. In today's world, these people are prone to dying dying young of coronary heart disease. However, this was not always so. Researchers at Leiden University in the Netherlands traced the ancestors of three present-day individuals with this disorder until they found a pair of common ancestors who lived in the late 18th century. Then, by tracing all descendants of this pair and screening all living descendants for the defective gene, they were able to identify 412 individuals who either had definitely carried the gene and passed it on, 
or who were siblings who had a 50% chance of carrying it. They found, to their amazement, that before the 1860s, people with this trait had a 50% lower mortality rate than the general population. In other words, cholesterol seemed to have a protective value, and people with very high cholesterol levels lived longer than average. Their mortality rate, however, rose steadily during the late 19th century until it equaled the rate of the general population in about 1915. The mortality of this subgroup continued rising during the 20th century, reaching double the average during the 1950s and then leveling off somewhat. One can speculate, based on the study, that before the 1860s, cholesterol did not cause coronary heart disease, and there is other evidence that this is so. In 1965, Leon Michaels, working at the University of Manitoba, decided to see what historical documents revealed about fat consumption in previous centuries when coronary heart disease was extremely rare. What he found also contradicted current wisdom and convinced him that there must be something wrong with the cholesterol theory. One author in 1696 had calculated that the wealthier half of the English population or about 2.7 million people, ate an almost flesh yearly averaging 147.5 pounds per person, more than the national average for meat consumption in England in 1962. Nor did the consumption of animal fats decline at any time before the 20th century. Another calculation made in 1901 had shown that the servant-keeping class of England consumed, on average, a much larger amount of fat in 1900 than they did in 1950. Michaels did not think that lack of exercise could explain the modern epidemic of heart disease either because it was among the idle upper classes who had never engaged in manual labor and who were eating much less fat than they used to that heart disease had increased the most. Then there was the incisive work of Jeremiah Morris, professor of social medicine at the University of London, who observed that in the first half of the 20th century, coronary heart disease had increased while coronary atheroma, which is cholesterol plaques in the coronary arteries, had actually decreased. Morris examined the autopsy records at London Hospital from the years 1908 through 1949. In 1908, 30.4% of all autopsies in men aged 30 to 70 showed advanced atheroma. In 1949, only 16%. In women, the rate had fallen from 25.9% to 7.5%. In other words, cholesterol plaques in coronary arteries were far less common than before, but they were contributing to more disease, more angina, and more heart attacks. By 1961, when Morris presented a paper about the subject at Yale University Medical School, studies conducted in Framingham, Massachusetts and Albany, New York, had established a connection between cholesterol and heart disease. Morris was sure that some other unknown environmental factor was also important. Quote, It is tolerably certain, he told his audience, that more than fats in the diet affect blood lipid levels. More than blood lipid levels are involved in atheroma formation, and more than atheroma is needed for ischemic heart disease. That factor, as we will see, is electricity. Electromagnetic fields have become so intense in our environment that we are unable to metabolize fats the way our ancestors could. Whatever environmental factor was affecting human beings in America during the 1930s and 1940s was also affecting all the animals in the Philadelphia Zoo. The Laboratory of Comparative Pathology was a unique facility found at the zoo in 1901. And from 1916 to 1964, laboratory director Herbert Fox and his successor, Herbert L. Ratcliffe, kept complete records of autopsies performed over 13,000 animals that had died in the zoo. During this period, arterial sclerosis increased at an astonishing 10 to 20-fold among all species of animals and birds. In 1923, Fox had written that such lesions were, quote, exceedingly rare, occurring in less than 2% of animals as a minor and incidental finding at autopsy. The incidence rose rapidly during the 1930s, and by the 1950s, arteriosclerosis was not only occurring in young animals, but was often the cause of their death rather than just finding on autopsy. 
By 1964, the disease occurred in one quarter of all mammals and 35% of all birds. Coronary heart disease appeared even more suddenly. In fact, before 1945, the disease did not exist in the zoo. And the first heart attacks ever recorded in zoo animals occurred 10 years later in 1955. Arteriosclerosis had been occurring with some regularity since the 1930s in aorta and other arteries, but not in the coronary arteries of the heart. But sclerosis of the coronary arteries now increased so rapidly among both animals and birds that by 1963, over 90% of all mammals and 72% of all birds that died in the zoo had coronary disease, while 24% of mammals and 10% of the birds had had heart attacks. And a majority of the heart attacks were occurring in young animals in the first half of their expected lifespans. Arteriosclerosis and heart disease were now occurring in 45 families of mammals and 65 families of birds residing in the zoo, in deer and in antelope, in prairie dogs and squirrels, in lions and tigers and bears, and in geese, storks, and eagles. Diet had nothing to do with these changes. The increase in arteriosclerosis had begun well before 1935, the year that more nutritious diets were introduced throughout the zoo. And coronary disease did not make its appearance until 10 years later, yet the animals' diets were the same at all times between 1935 and 1964. The population density, for mammals at least, remained about the same during all 50 years, as did the amount of exercise they got. Ratcliffe tried to find an answer to so- in social pressures brought about by breeding programs that were, that were begun in 1940. He thought that psychological stresses must be affecting the animals' hearts but he could not explain why, more than two decades later, coronary disease and heart attacks were continuing to increase spectacularly throughout the zoo and among all species, whether or not they were being bred. Nor could he explain why sclerosis of arteries outside the heart had increased during the 1930s, nor why, thousands of miles away, researchers were finding arteriosclerosis in 22% of animals in the London Zoo in 1960, and a similar number in the Zoo of Antwerp, Belgium, in 1962. The element that increased most spectacularly in the environment during the 1950s when coronary disease was exploding among humans and animals was radiofrequency radiation. Before World War II, radio waves had been widely used for only two purposes, radio communication and diathermy, which is their therapeutic use in medicine to heat parts of the body. Suddenly, the demand for radio frequency generating equipment was unquenchable. While the use of the telegraph in the Civil War had stimulated its commercial development and the use of radio in World War I had done the same thing for that technology, the use of radar in World War II spawned scores of new industries. Radio frequency oscillators were being mass-produced for the first time and hundreds of thousands of people were being exposed to radio waves on the job. Radio waves that were now used not only in radar, but in navigation. Radio and television broadcasting. Radio astronomy, heating, sealing, and welding in dozens of industries, and, quote, radar ranges for the home. Not only industrial workers, but but the entire population were being exposed to unprecedented levels of radio frequency radiation. For reasons having more to do with politics than science, history took opposite tracks on opposite sides of the world. In Western bloc countries, science went deeper into denial. It had buried its head, ostrich-like, in the year 1800, as we saw in chapter 4, and now simply piled on more sand. When radar technicians complained of headaches, fatigue, chest discomfort, and eye pain, and even sterility and hair loss, they were sent for a quick medical exam and some blood work. When nothing dramatic turned up, they were ordered back to work. The attitude of Charles Barron, medical director of the California division of Lockheed Aircraft Corporation, was typical. Reports of illness from microwave radiation, quote, had all too often found their way into lay publications and newspapers, he said in 1955. He was addressing representatives of the medical profession, the armed forces, various academic institutions, and the airline industry at a meeting in Washington, D.C. Quote, unfortunately, he added, the publication of this information within the past several years coincided with the development of our most powerful airborne radar transmitters, and considerable apprehension and misunderstanding has arisen among engineering and radar test personnel. End quote. 
He told his audience that he had examined hundreds of Lockheed employees and found no difference between the health of those exposed to radar and those not exposed. However, his study, which was subsequently published in the Journal of Aviation Medicine, was tainted by the same see-no-evil attitude. His unexposed control population were actually Lockheed workers who were exposed to radar intensities of less than 3.9 milliwatts per square centimeter, a level that is almost four times the legal limit for exposure for general public in the United States today. 28% of these unexposed employees suffered from neurological or cardiovascular disorders or from jaundice, migraines, bleeding, anemia, or arthritis. And when Barron took repeated blood samples from his quote-unquote exposed population, those who were exposed to more than 3.9 milliwatts per square centimeter, the majority had a significant drop in their red cell count over time and a significant increase in their white cell count. Barron dismissed these findings as quote-unquote laboratory errors. The Eastern Bloc experience was different. Workers' complaints were considered important. Clinics dedicated entirely to the diagnosis and treatment of workers exposed to microwave radiation were established in Moscow, Leningrad, Kiev, Warsaw, Prague, and other cities. On average, about 15% of workers in these industries became sick enough to seek medical treatment, and 2% became permanently disabled. The Soviets and their allies recognized that the symptoms caused by microwave radiation were the same as those first described in 1869 by American physician George Beard. Therefore, using Beard's terminology, they called the symptoms neurasthenia, or neurasthenia, while the disease that caused them was named microwave sickness or radiowave sickness. Intensive research began at the Institute of Labor Hygiene and Occupational Diseases in Moscow in 1953. By the 1970s, the fruits of such investigations had produced thousands of publications. Medical textbooks on radio wave sickness were written, and the subject entered the curriculum of Russian and Eastern European medical schools. Today, Russian textbooks describe effects of the heart, nervous system, thyroid, adrenals, and other organs. Symptoms of radio wave exposure include headache, fatigue, weakness, dizziness, nausea, sleep disturbances, irritability, memory loss, emotional instability, depression, anxiety, sexual dysfunction, impaired appetite, abdominal pain, and digestive disturbances. Patients have visible tremors, cold hands and feet, flushed face, hyperactive reflexes, abundant perspiration, and brittle fingernails. Blood tests revealed disturbed carbohydrate metabolism and elevated triglycerides and cholesterol. Cardiac symptoms are prominent. They include heart palpitations, heaviness and stabbing pains in the chest, and shortness of breath after exertion. The blood pressure and pulse rate become unstable. Acute exposure usually causes rapid heartbeat and high blood pressure, while chronic exposure causes the opposite low blood pressure, and a heartbeat that can be as slow as 35 to 40 beats per minute. The first heart sound is doled, the heart is enlarged on the left side, and a murmur is heard over the apex of the heart, often accompanied by premature beats and an irregular rhythm. The electrocardiogram may reveal a blockage of electrical conduction within the heart and a condition known as left axis deviation. Signs of oxygen deprivation to the heart muscle, a flattened or inverted T wave and a depression of the ST interval, are extremely frequent. Congestive heart failure is sometimes the ultimate outcome. In one medical textbook, published in 1971, the author stated that in his experience, only about 15% of workers exposed to radio waves had normal EKGs. Although this knowledge has been completely ignored by the American Medical Association and is not taught in any American medical school, it has not gone unnoticed by some American researchers. Trained as a biologist, Alan H. Frey became interested in microwave research in 1960 by following his curiosity. Employed at General Electric Company's Advanced Electronic Center at Cornell University, he was already exploring how electrostatic fields affect an animal's nervous system, and he was experimenting with the biological effects of air ions. Later that year, while attending a conference, he met a technician from GE's radar test facility at Syracuse who told Frey that he could hear radar. Quote, He was rather surprised, Frey later recalled, when I asked if he would take me to a site and let me hear the radar. 
It seemed that I was the first person he had told about hearing radars who did not dismiss his statement out of hand, end quote. The man took Frey to his worksite near the radar dome at Syracuse, quote, and when I walked around there and climbed up to stand at the edge of the pulsating beam, I could hear it too, Frey remembers. I could hear the radar going zip, zip, zip. This chance meeting determined the future course of Frey's career. He left his job at General Electric and began doing full-time research into biological effects of microwave radiation. In 1961, he published his first paper on microwave hearing, a phenomenon that is now fully recognized, although still not fully explained. He spent the next two decades experimenting on animals to determine the effects of microwaves on behavior, and to clarify their effects on the auditory system, the eyes, the brain, the nervous system, and the heart. He discovered the blood-brain barrier effect, an alarming damage to the protective shield that keeps bacteria, viruses, and toxic chemicals out of the brain, damage that occurs at levels of radiation that are much lower than what is emitted by cell phones today. He proved that nerves, when firing, emit pulses of radiation themselves in the infrared spectrum. All of Frey's pioneering work was funded by the Office of Naval Research and the United States Army. When scientists in the Soviet Union began reporting that they could modify the rhythm of the heart at will with microwave radiation, Frey took special interest. N.A. Levitina in Moscow had found that she could either speed up an animal's heart rate or slow it down depending on which part of the animal's body she irradiated. Irradiating the back of the animal's head quickened its heart rate, while irradiating the back of its body or stomach slowed it down. Frey, in his laboratory in Pennsylvania, decided to take this research one step farther. Based on the Russian results and his knowledge of physiology, he predicted that if he used brief pulses of microwave radiation synchronized with the heartbeat and timed to coincide precisely with the beginning of each beat, he would cause the heartbeat to speed up and might disrupt its rhythm. It worked like magic. He first tried the experiment on the isolated heart of 22 different frogs. The heart rate increased every time. In half of the hearts, arrhythmias occurred, and in some of the experiments, the heart stopped. The pulse of radiation was most damaging when it occurred exactly one-fifth of a second after the beginning of each beat. The average power density was only six-tenths of a microwatt per square centimeter, roughly 10,000 times weaker than the radiation that a person's heart would absorb today if he or she kept a cell phone in a shirt pocket while making a call. Frey conducted the experiments with isolated hearts in 1967. Two years later, he tried the same thing on 24 live frogs with similar, though less dramatic, results. No arrhythmias or cardiac arrests occurred, but when the pulses of radiation coincided with the beginning of each beat, the heart speeded up significantly. The effects Frey demonstrated occur because the heart is an electrical organ and microwave pulses interfere with the heart's pacemaker. But in addition to these direct effects, there is a more basic problem. Microwave radiation and electricity in general starves the heart of oxygen because of effects at the cellular level. These cellular effects were discovered, oddly enough, by a team that included Paul Dudley White. In the 1940s and 1950s, while the Soviets were beginning to describe how radio waves cause neurasthenia in workers, the United States military was investigating the same disease in military recruits. So we're going to end today's episode there, which is roughly about halfway through that chapter entitled Irritable Heart. And next week's episode, when I read the second half, it'll start to connect the dots even more so, especially to the mitochondria and both electromagnetic radiation and electricity, you know, the, the ramping up and the innovation of electricity over the decades and centuries and how that's affected our mitochondria and how that has affected especially the heart. Uh, heart conditions and heart diseases. And as you can tell through through today's episode, diet and exercise is not the answer and not the problem. It's electricity. It's non-native electromagnetic radiation. So we'll continue to connect the dots next week. And I'd love to get some feedback from you guys if you are enjoying this type of information, because I wouldn't mind dabbling into the chapter about diabetes and how electricity affects that because when you <laughs> when you combine heart health and essentially metabolic health or which diabetes is then you're kind of looking at the scope of the myriad of diseases that are 
scourging the United States and worldwide, but especially the United States, we've seen this parabolic rise in obesity, this parabolic rise in type 2 diabetes, this parabolic rise in all types of metabolic diseases. And again, metabolic diseases equal mitochondrial dysfunction. So whether you listen to this episode again or when we when we review the rest of the chapter next week, just keep that in mind. Whenever a metabolic health or metabolic dysfunction is brought up in this book, that is synonymous with mitochondrial dysfunction. And so I hope you guys enjoy that information. I hope this is broadening your knowledge and I guess perspective on really how damaging non-native EMFs are. Again, go get your EMFs by grounding outside, get those electrons, those not uh, those uh, free electrons, which are good for the body, it raises your voltage. But this book is specific about non-native EMFs and how that is destroying the human health as, as we continue to innovate. And again, 5G has been around just for a little bit. And, and what did we see a handful of years ago? We saw COVID-19. So I think there is a connection there. But regardless, again, I hope you guys enjoy this. As always, provide feedback. Even if you didn't like it, some constructive feedback, I always appreciate that. But otherwise, I'll plan on finishing the chapter on the heart and, and we can consider moving into the chapter about diabetes subsequently. But uh, gosh, we're, we're getting close to the middle of August. Get outside, enjoy your summertime, get that healthy sun exposure. Of course, use your red light therapy as necessary. And as always, hope you guys enjoy this episode. See you next week light up your health. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.